0: After several months in Mark's Gospel, today we arrive at where Mark has been trying to take us all along. We arrive at the cross. The cross is not only the pinnacle of Mark's Gospel, it's the pinnacle of the Gospel. It's the pinnacle of our religion, and it's the pinnacle of creation. All of history has been rolling like a freight train toward an old, rugged cross. Let's go there, shall we? Today we come to Mark chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 16 through 32. Mark 15, 16 through 32. If you don't have your Bible with me, the verses will be on the screen. Verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff. "...and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross." They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests And the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father. Who. What a passage that we come to this morning. As we examine your word, we ask you in humility to give us your spirit. Please. Give us your spirit so that we might see Jesus and see his cross in a new and profound light. One that will change us from the inside out. Thank you, Father. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for your suffering. And Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Crucifixion was a gruesome way to die. But as we said last week, Mark doesn't focus on the gory details of crucifixion. Other gospel writers do that. Instead, Mark focuses on the shame of crucifixion. The shame. Now, most paintings you see of the crucifixion, Jesus has a cloth covering his private parts, but that's not the reality. Mark tells us that Jesus was stripped naked. He was removed of every ounce of his dignity. I've actually only seen one painting in my life that I think accurately depicts Jesus's crucifixion. And I'll be honest, I can't look at it for more than a few seconds. Again, not only because of its brutality, but because of its shame. I thought for a brief moment about showing you that painting on the screen today. But I thought better of it (laughs) since it is literally rated X. I decided not to show that to you. But the point is, the cross is more shameful than most any of us understand. Mark tells us that the soldiers laughed at Jesus and spit on him. He tells us that the soldiers put a purple robe on Jesus and twisted together a crown of thorns for his head. He tells us the soldiers mockingly bowed to Jesus He tells us that they stripped him naked. Mark tells us of the sign put over Jesus' head that read, King of the Jews, in mockery of him. In verses 29 and 30, he tells us the crowds hurled insults at him. In verses 31 and 32, he tells us the religious leaders mocked him. And at the end of our text today, we even have the two thieves who are being crucified with Jesus. They too are making fun of him. But the question today is why? Why? Why is everyone insulting him this way? And Why does God's plan of redemption include the humiliation of Jesus? Not just the suffering. Why does it include the humiliation of Jesus? Our text today gives us two answers. Number one, in your outline, Jesus' humiliation reveals our hearts. Jesus' humiliation reveals our hearts. And it reveals it in two ways. The mockery that we see in our text reveals our hearts in two ways. Number one, the mockery shows our absolute hostility to Jesus' claim of divinity. We hate Jesus' lordship over us. We hate it. Just look at the text. Just look at it. What are they making fun of Jesus for? Are they mocking him for the Sermon on the Mount? Are they mocking him for the golden rule? No. They're making fun of his claims. They're making fun of who he claimed to be. Now, don't get me wrong. We hate Jesus' moral commands too. We hate them so bad, the only thing we are forced to do is water them way down. Okay? We just water them way, 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 way down. So when he tells us, love your neighbor equally as much as you love yourself, well, that won't do. So we water that down to just say, be nice. Jesus doesn't want you to actually love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. No, he just wants you to be nice, be a nice person. See, we hate Jesus's moral commands. Jesus says, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And we turn that into go to church. Just go to church. Sometimes. See, we do that because we hate Jesus' commands. We hate them. But the reason we really hate them the root of our hate of his commands is his claims that's the real problem for us you see if jesus was just a wise sage if he was like every other religious ruler in history just just a good moral teacher a wise sage well then we could easily dismiss his moral teachings that we don't like and keep the ones we do like right so we'll take some from buddha You know, we'll take some from Muhammad, we'll take some from Jesus, we'll throw it all together, and we'll come up with our worldview that way. But we have a small problem. Jesus won't let us do that with him. (laughs) He won't let us. You see, when the person who tells us to love our neighbor also tells us that he's the king of the universe... Well, that's unacceptable. We're okay with Jesus as a moral teacher. We're okay with him as a wise sage. But the claim to be our Lord and King won't do. That ain't gonna work. Nope, we have to crucify that guy and ridicule and mock him while we do so. As a former atheist myself, I've had many conversations over the years with other atheists, and I still do. I have lots of conversations with them, and and what is amazing to me is that so many atheists laugh and ridicule a Jesus who they don't believe in. That, like, kind of blows my mind, really. But, you know, I used to do the same thing. I used to openly laugh and ridicule Christians. And Jesus, and, but when you think about it, isn't that kind of odd? I mean, it's kind of weird. Like if I don't believe in Jesus, why would he conjure up so much emotion and vitriol from me? You know, why wouldn't I just easily dismiss him and move along with my life? Why did I feel the need to ridicule Christians and embarrass Christians to humiliate them? Why did I feel the need to do that? It's because of the radicalness of his claims. It's because of who he claimed to be and who Christians claim that he is. That's what draws out the ridicule and the mocking. You see, his radical claims force us into a radical decision. A radical decision. We either have to fall on our knees and worship him or spit in his face and laugh at him but there's no in between. He doesn't leave us that option. Flannery O'Connor, famous author, she wrote an incredible short story of an elderly Christian woman who was kidnapped. And in the story, the Christian grandmother pleads with her kidnapper. And she says, oh son, I know deep down you're a good boy if you would just pray more and go to church, I know things would change for you. I know they would. If you just go to Jesus, just go to Jesus, son. And the kidnapper responds to the grandmother and says, Jesus? If Jesus is who he said he is, then there's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him but if he isn't if he's not who he said he is then there's nothing for you to do but absolutely anything you want to do in this life anything including kidnapping you for a ransom Years later, Flannery O'Connor talked about this short story, and she explained that the kidnapper had a much better understanding of Jesus than the grandmother did. The grandmother was just like a lot of us. She was just religious, you see. She was just a good Christian lady. But really, her beliefs about Jesus were very superficial. She was trying to find Jesus in the middle somewhere. But with Jesus, there is no middle. (laughs) There is no middle. It's all or nothing. It's total devotion or mockery. That's it. And the kidnapper understood that. He understood the radicalness. Of Jesus' claims much better than the grandmother did. He understood that Jesus was claiming to be something he could not get on board with. And so he mocked him, just like you do, just like I do. You see, that's what we can't stand about Jesus. We don't want to bow to him. We don't want to. We're in control of our lives, not Jesus. Nobody tells us what to do. We are the captain of this ship, the master of our own fate. We don't want to bow to him and we don't want to give up everything to follow him. Give me a break, Jesus. We just want to be nice religious people, like the grandmother in O'Connor's story. We just want to be nice religious people, you know, go to church, throw some money in the plate every now and then. Feel like we're a pretty good person for doing so. But unfortunately, that's not what Jesus demands of us. As king of the universe, he demands perfect moral obedience from us and nothing less, nothing less. Perfect, perpetual obedience. And we can't stand it. The hostility of our hearts is immediately drawn out by that demand and by that claim. So the mockery shows us our hostility to Jesus' claims, But secondly, the mockery shows us our prideful ignorance of the power of weakness. Our prideful ignorance of the power of weakness. Jesus is by far the most unique person in history. In fact, if you're wondering how I converted from atheism to Christianity, it was the person of Jesus that did so. I was shocked into belief because of who Jesus is. There has never been anyone like him. In fiction or non-fiction, nobody even comes close. And let me give you an example. His personal claims were outrageous and bombastic. But his behavior was gentle and self-sacrificing. Now isn't that weird? (laughs) Isn't that weird? I mean, usually outrageous claims go with outrageous behavior. Like outrageous people are just outrageous all the way down, right? (laughs) And then humble people are humble all the way down. They're humble in their claims and they're humble in their actions. But here we have Jesus with outrageous claims, but then extreme meekness and humility in his behavior. We've never seen anything like that. He's a king without a throne. He's a general without an army. He's a baby in a manger, not a palace. He spends all his life laying down his own needs for the needs of others. And this is what bumfuzzles us. (laughs) It bumfuzzles us. It makes no sense. And so this is the second way they mock Jesus in our story today. They say, Jesus, you can't be king. Like, you can't be. Because if you were king, you wouldn't be so weak. You wouldn't be so weak. You wouldn't let us beat you or spit on you. You'd be powerful. And you'd get yourself down from that cross. But you, you can't be king. You are too frail and too humble and too meek. God wouldn't work with someone as lowly as you, Jesus. It's interesting. Just this week, I promise, just this week, uh, I talked to a homeless man out here in our parking lot. We talked for a good while. And I asked him if I could pray for him. And he said, yeah, a lot of good prayers done for me. Look at the situation I'm in. A lot of people are praying for me. Look what it's done. And it done nothing. Do you see what he did? He mocked Jesus. Why? Why did he mock him? Because he doesn't see how God could work through weakness and suffering. He doesn't see it. Even in his lowly state in life, he's still eaten up with pride. (laughs) He thinks he knows better than God how things should be going for him. But you know we do the same thing all the time <laughs> i know i do a little suffering comes my way and the first thing i do is stare at the sky and throw my hands up right what's going on here jesus you sleep at the wheel I end up mocking Jesus too. I mock him because I'm eaten with pride just like the homeless fellow is. I fall for the lie that says God cannot work through weakness and suffering. The lie that says God wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and wise at all times. The lie that suffering is always evil. I admit it. My name is Dustin. And I fall for the lie that God can't work through suffering. When in reality, he explicitly said that he does. (laughs) He explicitly said it. So the Apostle Paul writes uh, that he had a demon tormenting him. Okay, And he says that he pleaded with Jesus three times to take the demon away from him. And you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, "No." Nope. Jesus says, "Quote, my grace is sufficient for you. <laughs> for my power is made perfect in weakness." in weakness, end quote. And so I'm worried. I'm worried for me, and I'm worried for you. I'm worried that we don't really believe that grace is sufficient. I think that that right there is the greatest challenge of the Christian life. In fact, I think that's really what discipleship is it's working and working and working really hard to believe that grace is sufficient. That grace is all we need, That's hard. That is a heck of a challenge. I'm worried for us. (laughs) I'm worried that we don't believe that God intentionally operates through hardships and weakness. We believe that he's up in heaven just with, oh, he's panicked. Oh, look at the storm. What do we do? Right? Just like the disciples in the boat. The storm comes. The boat starts rocking. What do they do? Jesus, are you asleep at the wheel? (laughs) when Jesus was the one who sent them into the storm. He sent them in. (laughs) He's the one who told them to get in the boat and go. He does that with us too. And I'm afraid for us, I'm afraid we don't believe that. So the mockery of Jesus reveals our hostility towards Jesus's claims of lordship. uh, And it reveals our prideful ignorance of the power of weakness. That's pretty scary. (laughs) It's pretty scary, but fortunately, the sermon doesn't end there. Point number two in your outline. Jesus's humiliation reveals his heart. It reveals his heart. When you think about it, it wasn't that stupid for them to say what they said in our text here. It wasn't that stupid. They said, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. I mean, that makes sense to our worldly minds. It does. I mean, every epic story, I mean, who's a Marvel film fan? You like Marvel films? I've seen all of them. Oh, yes. Love the Marvel films. Yes. I've seen them all, right? And so every epic story, including the Marvel films, including like all the comic books, but I'm even talking about all the way, all the way, all the way back. Every epic story ever told has a hero who is almost killed, who is almost wiped out. But then, at the last second, just in the nick of time, he musters up enough superhero strength to save himself. Or his friends rush in at the last second. They muster up enough strength to save him, right? So the people in our text today, they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, Okay, you say you're a hero. Do your hero thing. Huh? Come on down from there. Time's running out, hero. Come on down from the cross. But what they don't realize is that Jesus is a greater hero than we have ever imagined. He's a greater hero than we've ever come up with in fiction or in comic books or anything else. You see, he is a hero who doesn't save us at the risk of his life. All heroes do that. But Jesus is a hero who saves us at the cost of his life. Jesus himself says in John 10, 18, No one takes my life from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. You see, the crowd believed Jesus had to express his love and greatness by coming down from the cross. But you and I know better. We should know better. We know that Jesus expressed His love and greatness by staying on the cross. In the greatest act of heroism in the history of the universe, the king in the most glorious place came to the most shameful place, the most humiliating place. The most powerful person became. The weakest person he left the place where he was glorified and worshiped and came to a place where he was mocked and spit upon where he was brutalized and humiliated but why again why well Judea in the first century was a shame and honor culture really all cultures were In the world at this time and the honor of your name meant absolutely everything the honor of your name and your family's name it meant everything everything people thought that if their name became great enough to last after they died then in a very real way they would continue to live after death if their name lived on then they believed that they would live on through their name. So, to have your name become a laughingstock was the worst thing that could happen to you in that shame and honor culture. And that's why crucifixion was so terrible. It didn't just kill your body, it killed your name. It killed your name. In front of all of Jerusalem, your name was shamed and then blotted out. Your name became a laughing stock. So on the cross, Jesus was not just being killed, he was being shamed he was having his name become a laughing stock. And he willingly let it happen. He just took it. Why? Jesus says in the book of Revelation, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So here's an interesting question. How do you get your name in the book in the first place? How do you get your name in the book of life? You see, Psalm chapter 2 tells us what the human race deserves for its pride and rebellion against its creator. It tells us. It says that we deserve scorn, we deserve shame, and we deserve to be mocked. That's what Psalm 2 tells us we deserve. But if that's true, if that's what we deserve, then how in the world do we get our names in the book of life? Right? If we deserve scorn, shame, and mockery, how could our name be written in heaven? It sure wasn't because we earned it. It sure wasn't because we were such good Christians. It sure wasn't because we met God's demand for perfect obedience. (laughs) No. The only reason our names are in the book of life is because Jesus' name was blotted out. Jesus alone met God's standard for perfect obedience. Paul writes, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Don't you see? In perfect obedience to his father, he took what Psalm 2 tells us we should get. He let his name become a laughingstock so that your name could have the highest honor in the highest place and be written in heaven's book. You see, Jesus is your substitute, Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 says, when the servant of the Lord comes, he will be despised and rejected. And verse 6 says, he will not turn away from the mocking and the spitting. He will not turn away. Why not? It's because that's what we deserve. And he is our Substitute. We deserve the mocking and the spitting, but because of His and His Father's unfathomable, indescribable love for us, Jesus took what we deserve so that we can get what He deserves, which is eternal joy and peace with the Father. His name was blotted out of the book so that your name could be written in the book forever. And it will never be blotted out, ever. It'll be written there forever. And so you need to see that Jesus didn't just die for your sins. He was shamed for your sins. You need to see that his suffering was total. It was total. He suffered in mind, body, spirit, and emotion. What Jesus suffered was literally hell. That is what he suffered. And you need to see that that's the entire reason he came. It's the whole reason he came in the first place. Because he's our hero, our true hero, born in the manger, died on a cross, and rose from a borrowed tomb, all for you and all for me, for your sins and for mine. He is our redeemer. He is our substitute. He is our lamb. The hymn writer says it well. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. In the old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to pardon and sanctify me. So I'll cherish